Well, good morning, church. Merry Christmas. I think I can start saying that now. We're close enough, right? Merry Christmas to uh, celebrate the season as we head into Christmas time. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Country Bible Church. We are so glad that you're here with us today. And for those of you joining us online, we just want to welcome you as well. Let me take this opportunity up front to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible, that's all right. This morning, you can raise your hand. One of our ushers would be glad to bring you a Bible. Bible. And this Bible is yours to have and to keep. We'd love to invite you to bring it with you each and every week as this is, uh, this is a foundational for who we are and what we do. We believe that the Word of God is active and alive and being written in our hearts today. And so we, we study it and we carry it with us. We, we work through it uh, together on Sunday mornings and hopefully throughout the week. Speaking of week, last week we started off a brand new series that's going to take us through the rest of 2017. A series that we are calling This Christmas. And the idea behind this series is that we don't want to go through the motions this Christmas. People can quickly fall into routine. They can fall into traditions, doing the same things that they've always done because, well, that's just what you've always done. And one of the risks that we run with tradition, one of the risks that we run with going through the motions is that we lose sight of the original intent, the impact, the significance so this Christmas is designed for us to reflect on things that otherwise might be traditional for us, that would be easy for us to overlook, but to really focus in on and pay attention to the things that God's calling us to. Things that are bubbling under the surface that should explode from within us. So last week I started the series off with a message entitled, Because Lights Matter. And I talked about how uh, this year we all hang Christmas lights and people uh, who, who, who hang Christmas lights go around and share the experience with their family and friends. And I think I got more response from last week's message, not about the Bible, but a bunch of guys saying, thanks a lot, pal, than uh, that at any other time. I had one of my friends say, I'm not putting up lights, but you're welcome to come to my house if you want to. You can put them up for me. But the idea is, Jesus says, look, you're the light of the world. You're called to stand out. You're called to, to, to direct, to lead, to guide, and to, to be the light. Jesus, the word light that, that, that he uses there is the same word we get photographed for. And he says, you are literally a living embodiment of me. And so as a light or as a photograph, you are the true image of me as an image bearer for me. And we talked about how this Christmas, as you're seeing the lights and as you're hanging the lights, to reflect on what it means to be the light of the world. Today, today I've entitled the message, Prepared to Give. Because each year, we all get prepared to give in some way, shape, form, or facet. Some of you are a little uh, more obsessive compulsive about how you give than others. Uh, some of you are in my camp where you'll go out around December 23rd, maybe December 24th, and, and you'll do last, last minute Christmas shopping for whatever's out there. The rest of you sane people, you've been bought for six months. You've got it all figured out. And, and so, but the idea is, we're going to look at all, all day today, that there's a preparation that goes into giving. That it's not just something you do, but that we are called to be prepared to give. So today we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, and we are going to try to get through two verses together over the next 30 minutes or so. Two verses. I'm excited about this. This letter is a letter written by the Apostle Paul intended for early church Christians in Rome. These are new believers. These are like many of you who are brand new to faith. They've just recently encountered Jesus and their lives have been completely rocked, completely transformed. They're trying to figure out this whole faith thing. They're trying to figure out this whole religion versus relationship and what it means to, to, to have a, a metamorphosis from religion, always doing the same thing, going through the same practices into an active relationship with Jesus, with the God of the universe. 
And we're gonna study together just these two verses and I think you're gonna see that there's at least four characteristics that we're called to give as believers. And it's already, I just wanna tell you right now that there's a parallel if you want to get ready to Matthew 22, 36 and 37. There are four characteristics that God desires of us to give, to be prepared to give, to be intentional and active about giving. So as we jump in to this letter that Paul wrote to the early church in Rome, let's pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, thank you for this morning, for this moment, for this opportunity, for your word. And I pray that your word would wash over us. I pray that your word would become active and alive in us. I pray that you would change the composition of our hearts. And Father, I pray that you would meet us where we're at and do what you want to do in us. Father, I pray that you'd ready us to encounter you, that you'd change our lives, and that we would be prepared to give by the end of our time together today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, God. May you redeem this time for your glory, for your good works. I pray against distractions this morning, Lord. Help us to focus in on you and you alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, I'm going to read this to you first. And then I'm going to read it to you again, and we're going to spend some time investigating it. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I invite you to follow along. This is Paul to the early church. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice that he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you. Which is good and pleasing and perfect. These two verses take us from religion and into a relationship. These two verses establish the practice of authentic worship through relationship and that our bodies, our lives are a living sacrifice. And we're going to investigate a whole lot of things today, things that contextually we have to pay attention to so that we understand what God is calling us to. So let's do this. Let's read through this together again. Uh, and we're going to stop and investigate some, some things as we go. Uh, verse 12, or excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1 again. It starts off with, and so, stop. This is predicated on the first 11 chapters of Romans. Now, Paul, when he wrote this letter, he didn't write it with chapters or verses. That's man-made so that it's easy for us to follow along and identify and understand. But when Paul pins this letter to the original audience around AD 57 in Rome, it's a group that he doesn't even really know. Paul is on his missionary journeys establishing churches. And he's spending his time raising up leaders. And he's having to teach them what religion is and what a relationship is. And he is an expert in religious law. He knows better than anyone the transformation that takes place when you move away from religion and into a relationship. Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome that is heavily influenced in a couple of ways. They're heavily influenced by the Jewish traditions, by the Jewish cultures, by the rabbinic traditions. And so there's a lot of religion that is present. There are Pharisees, there are Sadducees, there are Essenes, there are scribes. There are people who focus, who pride themselves on religion. And then there's also a, a, another group of people, or several groups of people, that worship little g-gods or deities. And they have idol worship, false worship, false gods. So Paul is writing to a really big eclectic audience. It's not as though he's sitting down talking to us one-on-one, -on -one, though we're going to see here in a moment that he does speak to us in that tense. 
He is identifying in the first 11 chapters what we know as theology. It's the understanding of. And the theology that Paul teaches for the 11 chapters prior to this is he teaches the theology of grace. He teaches a theology of mercy. He teaches a theology of gospel. And that sounds kind of funny. How do you teach a theology of gospel? Well, ask yourself this question, a question that I asked my son this last week. What is the gospel? And I think most of us can readily identify that the gospel is the good news message. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, God sent his son to die. And and we celebrate that. Right. Now, let me ask you this. What does the gospel mean to you? Where you sit this morning in your life, what does the gospel mean to you? Your circumstances, your situation, what does it mean to you? And so this is what Paul is addressing. He's writing a letter that focuses in large part on doctrine and theology about what the gospel means, what the mercy of God looks like, what grace identifies as in our own lives individually and collectively and corporately. And when he writes this, he's writing to two different types of people. He's going to write here, we'll find out momentarily that he's writing to us as individuals, but he's also going to write to the church, the body, all of us. So when he says, and so, he's saying in light of, Based on the conversation we've had leading up to this, it leads us to this conclusion. Based on all the facts, all the information, all the dialogue that's gone around up until this point, this is the application. This is the practical application. This is where the rubber meets the road. And he's going to spend the next time he has in, Ro- uh, in, in Romans, the rest of this letter, talking about how we apply the principles of the gospel in our lives, how we apply the theology in our lives, how we understand and apply the mercy and the grace of God in our lives. So when he says, and so, in light of everything that you've heard, learned, and seen from me, dear brothers and sisters, a term of endearment that identifies him with other believers, I plead with you. That word plead is a, I need you to, it's, 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 a, it's a, a deep sense of passion. It's a plea. It's a, it's a desire. It's a strong urging. Do you, you ever, ever want to just force somebody to do something or force somebody to stop something? How many of you have ever watched American Idol or any of those singing shows where people are singing and you just want to plead with them to stop? Stop singing. You, 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 you. And it's amazing to me, some of the people who've made millions of dollars on being horrible. Like, just absolutely. She banged. She banged. Like, that whole thing. But they're sitting there singing, and somewhere along the way, someone lied to them and told them that their voice sounded good to others. The Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Doesn't mean I have to hear it. And so, you're sitting there, they're singing out loud, and you're just pleading inside. Oh, God, please help them. Make it Stop. That is what Paul is insisting here, is I want, if I could do it for you, if I, could, if I could force you to do this, if I could just grab you where you're at and pull you into where I want you to be, that's the term here that he uses. I plead with you. I want you to get this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, that word you in the original language we identified last week. That word is humorous. The word humorous in the original language It means you alone. We're going to see the word you used again in a moment, but it's something different. This represents, though, when you use the word humorous or you alone, it is an active imperative. It It is unique to you. This is singular. This is where I said last week, if you remember, when Jesus says, blessed are you 
that his disciples, even though they were in a large audience, would have leaned in and given an ear to because they would have wanted to learn from the rabbi. They, wanted, they would have wanted to observe the rabbi, but they would have wanted to catch his teachings that were specific to them. So when he says, and you, he's now talking specifically to each and every Christian. This is not a broad brushstroke. This is very unique and specific to you. If you're here this morning, though this original letter was not intended for you as the original audience, it is specific still to this day for you because of the verbiage, the wordage, and how God speaks, spoke. This is you, humorous, and you alone. So I need you to lean in now for a moment and say, okay, if it's important for God to speak to me individually, to speak to me independently as though I were the only one he was talking to, what is the message that you have for me right now, God? He said, I plead with you. I implore you. I want to, I I need you to get this, he's saying. To give to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Now, I told you at the onset of today's message that there were four characteristics that we're going to learn here today that are a direct parallel to Matthew 22, 36, and 37, which is the greatest commandment when a religious leader comes to Jesus and he's trying to entrap Jesus by saying, tell me, teacher, what's the greatest law of Moses? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what. The greatest law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the four characteristics that Jesus identifies. The Apostle Paul is going to identify them here. The first one he says, I implore you to give. You could circle that word give, and next to that you could put in there will. W-I-L-L. This is your will. One of the four characteristics that we are called to be prepared to give to God is when it comes to our will. When it comes to our will, this is our desire. When it comes to our desire, this is what drives us. So when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what he's talking about now is, is, is our, our strength. This is our will, our, our drive, our desire, what pushes us. He's saying, I want you, I plead with you to give, to give. This is a willful choice. I want you to give God your will. And that doesn't just happen. We don't just fall into a relationship with God. We have to surrender our will To him. We have to surrender. If you were here when we did our Power of One series, then you probably heard me say something like, we need to surrender our ways for God's will. We need to put aside our best laid plans for God's purpose. And that's exactly what this is, is this is surrendering our will. Because if we're honest, there are things that we would rather do, but that doesn't honor God or that that God doesn't desire from us. So in order for us to do what is righteous, what is holy, what is better than... We must surrender our will. We have to make a choice to say, God, your will is greater than my ways. Your purpose is better than my best laid plans. And I am choosing this day to give my best ideas to what you desire for my life. We have to be prepared to give. You don't just, it doesn't just happen. You have to prepare your minds. Be prepared to give your will. Then he says, to give your bodies... Let's go back to Matthew 22, 36 and 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. You could, where it says bodies, you could circle the word bodies and you could put heart there. That word heart or bodies in the original language, it denotes a picture. It should draw up in our minds a picture, and I don't mean to be gross on a Sunday morning, of your intestines, of your innermost parts. 
When we think of heart, we think of the muscle that beats, that we get twitterpated, that we feel skip when that special someone walks in the room, or that races when we do that dreadful thing called cardi, cardo, anyway. We think of that. But that is not the word that the original language uses. Heart is how we identify it. But the original language draws up a picture of uh, a more closely associated with our, with our innards, with what is deep, deep, deep inside of you. Those things that, that, that cause you to function. It's, in other words, it's all of you. With every fiber of your being at your deepest core. Now Paul is talking to a culture and a society where there is pagan worship and they misuse their bodies. They use their bodies to sacrifice themselves. And he's going to use some weird terminology here that we would miss if we don't stop and investigate it. So let me read it in its entirety and then stop and go back. He said, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. Well, he says, I want you to give your will. Your bodies, the innards, deep inside of you, every fiber of your being, from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, I want you to give your bodies. Then he, re- he calls again. He says, and so, that word because is a parallel, uh, a parallel word that ties the whole sentence structure together that says, because of all that God has already done, the first 11 chapters that I've already identified, his grace, his mercy, the gospel, what the gospel means to us, what the gospel means to you, because of all that he's already done, give your bodies as a living and as a holy sacrifice. People listening to this, we listen to it with our Sunday school glasses on, a term I've used recently. But in context, they didn't have Sunday school glasses. They knew well what sacrifices were. You see, for the, for the religious, they were, they, they were well aware of the priestly sacrifice. This would be where they would go and they would have to prepare a blood offering or a blood sacrifice. They would have to prepare to give of an animal. The least blemished animal. The top of the crop, if you will. And they would have to then take that animal through a series of other religious exercises to the high priest or for the priestly exercise or the priestly sacrifice where the high priest then had a letter of the law that they had to follow about how they would have to drain out the blood of the animal. And it was not a living sacrifice, it was a dead sacrifice. But where they would sprinkle the blood, what they would do with the remaining blood, sometimes boiling the blood, how they would parse the meat, how they would cut it up, what meat would go where, how they would divide it, and how it would be burnt, and how it would be given. There was a practice of a blood sacrifice, which was an atonement sacrifice, which was the justification of our sins. It is how God made a way possible through the intercessory of a high priest for us to reconcile our ourselves unto God because of our brokenness, our sin that separates us from God. A meager attempt at that. But it was what was there. And so when Paul talks to the church about a a living sacrifice, they may not have been talking about the priestly sacrifice. They may have been talking about pagan gods. There were religions, there are religions to this day that sacrifice human lives that will they were, they, they, were, they were religions here that were throwing babies into burning fires, that were, that, were, that were killing babies in the name of their little g-gods, their deities, in pagan worship, as an act of worship, trying to suffice their God. They were willing to sacrifice everything for false gods. There were women who were sacrificing their bodies. You think about 
In Ephesians, you go to uh, the temple of Artemis, and you, you look at the temple Diana and, and what was going on there. There were women that were sacrificing their virginity in the name of a goddess to appease her. So when he says a living sacrifice, they're aware of the priestly sacrifice. They're aware of the other idols and the other little g-gods, the little deities, these types of sacrifices. But Paul introduces a language here with the word living, uh, zotas, that, 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 that is something that they're not familiar with. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? How do you prepare to be a living sacrifice? They know how to prepare the altar. They know how to prepare the blood sacrifice, the dead sacrifice. They know what others do to prepare their own sacrifices. But, but this is new to them. They had never been prepared to be a living sacrifice. Let's not lose that on ourselves as we read this. He says to them, I plead with you all to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice. If you want to circle that word holy... That's an important word. That's the third of four characteristics that we're called to be prepared to give to God. So he, so far he said, I want you to give of your will. I want you to give of your bodies. And now he's saying, I want you to give of your spirit. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You see, this is identifying that there's something more to us than these fleshly tents that we occupy right now. There's something greater in us, something more innate in us that we were created for and that indwells us. Now, as Christians, we identify that as the spirit of the living God that dwells in us, that leads us, the Holy Spirit, our counselor, the Holy Spirit, our comforter, the Holy Spirit, our guider, the Holy Spirit, our intercessor. But in those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they allow spirits, plural, to, to infiltrate their lives and to lead them. There is such a thing as a spirit of drunkenness. The Bible calls us not to give in to a spirit of drunkenness. There are, are, there's demonic oppression, there's demonic depression, there's demonic possession. And, and so each one of us, the, the fact that we have a soul, we allow spirits to, to, uh, to infect us and affect us. And here, this is another example of where we must be prepared to give of ourselves. The third characteristic is that we give of our soul that we give of our spirit. He says, I want you to prepare yourselves to be a living sacrifice. And then he says something really unique here. The kind he will find acceptable. Why would Paul talk about an acceptable offering? Can we all agree that throwing babies into a burning fire is unacceptable? And I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be uh, smart with you. I'm being serious. Like that is what they were practicing. There's still, pra that, there is still that practice going on in third world countries today. In little, in private villages in Ecuador and all over the world where, where, where this kind of idol worship goes on. Can we all agree that, that it's not acceptable to have virgins go to a temple and give up their virginity in the name of a goddess? Can we all agree that, that, that blood sacrifices is a little weird? Like, it, it, it's strange to us, and it's not acceptable to God. So when Paul says, the kind of sacrifice that is holy, which means to be set apart, to be unique, to be reserved for, to held up on a higher standard, as a living sacrifice, to be set apart, the kind that is acceptable to God. Well, we can identify then that that was unacceptable worship. So what is acceptable worship? This is an issue of attitude and actions. Worship is always an issue of attitude and actions. They are never exclusive, are, uh, exclusive. They are inclusive, one in the same. Our attitudes always reflect our actions, and our actions always are dictated by our attitudes. 
So let's look at what we're talking about here. I want to, I want to turn your attention to, I, I, I generally won't do this, but it's so important that we understand that today I'm going to share some parallel uh, passages of scripture with you. Uh, you can write them down. They're going to come up on the screen as well, but I would love for you to investigate these on your own this week and see how they tie together in, in this message and the living sacrifices. So the first one, uh, uh, unacceptable sacrifice, is in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, when King Saul has been given a directive by God through the prophet Samuel, and, and he is told to go with Agag and to conquer uh, their enemies and to not keep any plunder for themselves and not to spare any lives, including the king's life, to kill them all. Well, Saul has his own ideas of what worship looks like. And so he keeps the finest gold and silver and cattle, and he even spares the king's life. And when Samuel comes to confront him, and he says, what are you doing? You've disobeyed God. You didn't listen. He said, what do you mean? I spared this gold. I spared this silver. I spared this cattle and even the king's life so that we could sacrifice him and worship God. The issue was attitude, which led to his actions. Listen to what Samuel says. Take your sacred gifts, and, 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 and I'm sorry, uh, 1 Samuel 15. What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. He is addressing an issue of being prepared in the heart being prepared in the mind, being prepared to encounter God. And the greatest thing that we can do to be prepared is to act in obedience when God calls us to move. You want to write that down. The greatest thing that we can do to be prepared to worship is to act on God when he calls us to move. Act in obedience on God when he calls us to move. Because obedience is our success. It's not the gold that made Saul successful. It was obedience to God. It wasn't the silver that made Saul successful. It was obedience that God required. It wasn't that he kept the, the, the prize cattle. It was that he was obedient to God. It was that he didn't save the king's life. The, 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 the thing that God wanted was obedience. And church, I need you to know that that's what drives me. That's what motivates me. I get excited about all the amazing things that God is doing here. In fact, at the end of this message, I'm going to take a minute to share with you some of the cool things that God has done in just one year. But what you're going to hear isn't what drives me. It inspires me. It encourages me, but what drives me and what has to drive us as we prepare ourselves to worship God is obedience. Obedience to God and what he's calling us to. And so far, he's called us to give three and four characteristics. He's called us to give of our will. He's called us to give of our body. And he's called us to give of our spirit. This is also referred to in Psalm 40, verse 6, and in Amos chapter 5. I believe somewhere around verse 22, 23, 24, somewhere in there. He says, let them be a living and a holy sacrifice. The kind that God will find acceptable. And then he uses a word here that I love. He said, this is truly. That word truly, it, it, it speaks of authenticity, but it also speaks of accuracy and rationale. Like, do you ever, do you ever look at somebody and just ask the question, like, what were you thinking The number of times I get that look, this look right here for my wife, like, what are, you, what are you thinking? The number of times my kids get this look from me, the what are you thinking look. This is like, really? When you think about, what was your rationale? Like, what led you to make this choice? What was your process? 
I tried a line on my kid this week that I learned from a friend of mine. Uh, he wanted to argue with me about, I'm sorry, one of my kids wanted to argue with me about, <laughs> about whatever we were talking about in the house. And I said, you know, something tells me that, that you think that this is a democracy. <laughs> but at best, this is a monarchy, a dictatorship that I rule. And I'm about to build a wall at the end of my driveway and require you to have a visa to come and go in my kingdom. It didn't work as well as I think it did for my friend. <laughs> he just looked at me like, what is your rationale for saying something so stupid? This is what, this is what the apostle Paul is talking about though. In a world full of irrational thoughts and behaviors, when we think about how we spend money, if we truly stop to examine how we spent money compared to how God calls us to spend money, it would be considered incredibly irrational. When we think about how we spend our time on what matters most, when we have the kingdom of God at hand, and we look at what we waste our time with here on earth, it would be considered completely irrational. The other day when I went to the store, knowing full well what two packs of king-size Reese's peanut butter cups would do to me, it was completely irrational, and I did it anyway. And I felt horrible the next morning. He's talking about rational versus irrational. People worship the most irrational things in the most irrational ways. And why do we worship? Because we have an innate desire. God created us to be worshipers, all of us to be worshipers. We've got this innate desire. Some of us worship the God of football. Some of us worship the God of Scott Frost the deity of Scott Frost. Some of us worship uh, our finances. Some of us worship our 401k. We worship the thought of retirement. And everything we do, when I say worship, I mean worthyship. And worthyship means that you give yourself spiritually, physically, mentally, and give your will over to these things. We've given ourselves over to the idea of retirement, or we've given ourselves over to the idea of relationships. Broken. We, 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 we seriously, we worship some of the most irrational things in this world. And so Paul says, look, you're in good company. Truly, this is truly, this is rational. This is the only real way to worship God. You're not going to worship him through your blood sacrifices. You're not going to worship him through your living sacrifice, you know, the, the, the babies. You're not going to worship him through giving your body away like this or through going from one empty well to the next. The way that you truly worship God is to offer yourself as a holy sacrifice. And then he says, to further make this point about rational, he says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. So if, if, if this is the only way to rationally worship, is to fully surrender everything we have to God, then everything else must be irrational. But for those of us who are slow on the uptake, <laughs> Paul says, let me take the guesswork out for you. If this is the only rational way to worship God is with everything in you, mind, soul, body, strength, then that means that you can't conform to the ways of this world any longer. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Revelation 3.20 says either you're hot or you're cold, but if you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. So many of us misappropriate that scripture and we think it's all about, uh, about being lukewarm. It's not. 
what it's about is on a hot day, we need a cold beverage to quench our thirst. And on a cold day, we need a hot beverage to warm us up. And that anything in between, the, the word picture that is used there is of an aqueduct that was bringing water in over a 15-mile stretch. And by the time it was dropped off, it was stagnant water and it was lukewarm water and it was good for nothing. It was full of parasites and bacteria. And anybody who was to drink that water would become violently ill and would have no choice but to vomit that water out of their bodies. Their body wouldn't receive it. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not about being a hot Christian or a cold Christian. It is about doing the things that God has called you to do and being useful when he's called you to be useful and not being lukewarm, not wasting what God has given you. And that's what he says here when he says, look, 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 this is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the customs and the behaviors of this world, but... Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. This may very well be my favorite passage of scripture right now. This will mess with your theology and it will hopefully motivate you to live the life that Christ is calling you and me to live. We look at this when he says be transformed. That word transformed in the original Greek language is metamorpho. It's where we get our English word for metamorphosis. Metamorphosis in the English definition is a complete transformation of form. That something was solid, it is now liquid. That something was, uh, was one way, it is now another way. That there's been a metamorphosis. That it is no longer recognizable because of the transformation. Now here's the problem. Here's where we mess with our theology a little bit. Look at this church. He says, don't copy the behavior and patterns of this world or customs of this world, but let God, there it is again, sacrifice your will, let God do it, transform you into a new person. Most of us stop there and we go to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which says, and I'm going to read it from the NLT, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. We look at the word metamorphosis, metamorphosis or metamorpho here as a noun, as when it is already taking place. And Paul structures it that way. He says, in light of all that God has already done for you, let your lives be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So when we read this about transformation, a lot of us like to read this with the noun in mind, that there is a transformation that has already taken place. It's a transformation that we can do nothing to earn, deserve, buy, trade for, barter, steal, uh, or sell. It is something that we receive as a gracious, gracious gift from God because of his mercies, which is what Paul has spent 11 chapters establishing prior to this. He's saying, when you receive the grace of God, the gospel to you, for you, you will experience a metamorphosis. You will experience a transformation. The old gone, the new come. You are a new creation. The problem is that most of us look at this as a noun, as though it's already happened, and there's nothing else that we need to do. There's nothing you can do to lose it. There's nothing you can do to forfeit it. There's no other responsibility. Well, I'm a new creation. I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I'm a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Praise God. What are we doing until heaven? Keep reading. For those of us who have, have a bent toward that theology, and I'm not here to, because it's both and, not either or. But I want us to understand that the noun form of metamorphosis is not devoid of human responsibility. You see, when we come to know Christ, there's an initial sanctification where we're transformed. We don't look the same. We don't look the same. Recently, I went hunting with my son. 
And uh, one of us shot a huge buck. The other one had a baby doe. And I showed my girls. And all but one of my girls thought it was awesome. My one daughter was crying that we shot Bambi. And they refused to eat deer meat. Well, they're not even going to know. But as we took the deer and it went in in one form. And then the next day I went back with my kids. And hanging in the meat locker was just the remnants of the deer that we shot. It didn't look like the, the big old buck that one of us shot. It looked like hanging meat. You would not have recognized this nine-point atypical buck based on how it was hanging. There was a transformation. It looked totally unique and different. But listen to what God says. But let God transform you into a new person, that's the noun, by changing. That's the verb. By changing the way you think. That's also the fourth characteristic the way you think, that you need to be prepared to give God worship in how you think. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Direct parallel, Matthew chapter 22. The, the verb form of metamorphosis, I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 24. Listen to this. The apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, the same church, by the way, that is having virgins sacrifice themselves in the temple Artemis. Throw off your old sinful nature, throw is an adjective, and your former way of life, which is, which is current, corrupted by lust and deception, instead let, that's an issue of will now, the spirit renew, and this is a continual renewing, your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on the new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Look at the number of verbs and adjectives that are used here to describe an active lifestyle. The metamorphosis that we, want to, that we are comfortable in is that noun that says, well, God already did this for me. I accepted it, so I'm good to go. But the problem with that is that it is just short-sighted. The full picture is a progressive sanctification that says, I am not God, and I am not perfect, and until he comes, I will not be made perfect, and so I have to fully surrender my life to God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and continue in him. Continue to allow him to renew my mind, to take captive my thoughts and surrender them to him, to make them obedient to his word. I need to continue to, trans to, to, to give over my will to God. I need to, give, I need to continue to make a choice to give God my finances, to give God my relationships, to give God my spirituality, to give God what I do with my body, to give God what I do with my time. I need to make a choice in how I worship, active and living, holy and pleasing to God, to continue to choose to do it. Anything else is monotonous and going through the motions. Holy and pleasing offerings to God are a continuation of a relationship. And I love that Paul doesn't just leave it there. He's going to teach us how. The verb form of this is that we continue to grow, that we continue to be transformed more and more into the likeness. In fact, I love the Apostle Paul. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul Paul did not have it all figured out. He didn't say, follow me as I followed Christ. Follow me as I, I, when I became a Christian, I got it all. As I continue to grow and learn. And then he says this. This we're going to wrap up here. Changing the way that you think. Then, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Would you circle the word learn? 
or somehow point that out. Learn is so important because in order for us to be prepared to give, we've got to learn. Two years after I got married, I went out of my way to buy my wife what I thought was the greatest present ever. I paid attention. I listened to what she was talking about. And so Christmas came, and on Christmas morning, I had a ton of presents under the tree, all with her name on it. And one present after the next, she proceeded to unwrap weights. I haven't told you my story yet. Got some, got some women up in here saying, no, you stupid. <laughs> weights, some handheld weights. Got our whole collection of the, the bands, the red, blue, purple, all of them. I got her a sit-up ball, a BOSU ball. Nice one. Got her a jump rope. I got her some ankle weights. I got her some videos, like Taibo type videos. I got her everything I could think of that I could afford for working out. And why? Because you know what she said to me, guys? I think I'd like to start working out. You know what she meant by that? After Christmas! Not now, you moron! She opened up these presents, and I was so riddled with excitement, and she started to get more and more frustrated and even cried. And you know what she said to me, guys? Oh, you think I'm fat. <laughs> what? What, just, what, just, what just happened? You said I did, and now I'm, you, what? Oh, you don't really know me. You don't pay attention to me. If you knew what I wanted, I, I want a massage. I want a vacation from you and the kids. I, I want, I, I, I want, I want, I want, she didn't really say that. But my point is, she made it clear what she intended and what she really wanted and that I didn't really pay attention. I said, but you said teach her to talk about working out around me. <laughs> you know, that same year, Stacy got me a gift. It's the greatest gift I've ever received, tangible gift I've ever received. I, uh, I had gone into Guitar Center with my wife and my daughter and my young son. And I, I liken myself to be a hack of a musician. I play a few instruments that I don't play very well. And I went in there and there was this guitar. I walked in and Guitar Center was having a 25th anniversary of when they launched the store. And they had several guitar brands make a line of guitars specific to Guitar Center to celebrate the anniversary of, of this guitar. This, this guitar up on the screen is, is the guitar that I looked at, that I played. I picked it up, and I never played a guitar like this. It was koa back and sides. It was a solid cedar top. The action, which is the distance from the string to the, to the frets and the neck, was incredible. It felt like I was just pushing on butter. The, the way it sounded with the koa wood was so bright and vibrant. I played it, and it made me sound like I knew what I was doing. I loved this guitar. I went to Guitar Center on more than one occasion to just sit in there and play it. I played it unplugged. I played it plugged in. I played all my favorite songs over and over again. And I had Stacy come with me and she saw this guitar. That year, Stacy gave me this guitar as a present. But here's what I want you to know about. We were not able to afford this guitar. We had meager means. 
But she had paid attention. She had learned what I liked. She watched closely to the things that I cared about. And then in order to get that, that gift, she was prepared. She had to budget for that gift. She had to research that gift. She had to plan to buy it. And my wife is the kind of planner that will look for Black Friday specials and coupons and she'll price shop, she'll compare prices at different stores and brands and all of that. She went out of her way. She had to go more than once to talk to a salesman about something she knows little of or has little interest in. So she had to prepare her time to do this. But because we couldn't afford it, that year she reached out to everyone who was close to me in my family relationships. And when they all asked what to get me, she said, this is what I'd like to give him. Would you all be willing to contribute to it? And so everybody pitched in a little bit of money to help buy this gift. And the coolest thing was the process in which she got it. She didn't just get the guitar. She got a case. She got the accessories. She wrote a note, like almost like a scavenger hunt type to get me ready for it. It was awesome. She went out of her way. The guitar is cool. I love the guitar. But it was the heart behind it. It was the preparation, all the work that she had put in to getting that gift. And so here, church, I want you to hear something. In relationship to what I just shared with you about our ideas versus paying attention to God, he says, I want you to transform into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will be able to learn. The only way we learn is if we pay attention. The only way we learn is if we ascribe to, to, to what we read. And the only way we learn about God is by reading the word of God, the inerrant, perfect, flawless, inspired, active, living word of God through being in Christian community with other believers who can mutually encourage us in our faith, who can inspire us and encourage us and hold us accountable to becoming the believers that God has called us to believe, the fully devoted followers of Jesus, to get involved in a learning class or a learning session here at church, to involve ourselves in life groups here at the church, and to involve yourselves in the ministries here in our community. These are all well, uh, these are all ways that we work hard to make it possible for you to learn the ways of God through prayer, through, through, through worship, through Sunday celebration services. All of these are important. And the way that you learn the ways of God is by leading into God and those things that are godly, those who are godly. So he says here, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. What I want to share about this is just, listen, we work so hard to prepare ourselves for the perfect gift to give. My wife worked tirelessly to prepare herself to give that perfect gift. She worked to create a budget for it. She worked to create a timeline for it. She worked to get other people involved on it. She worked to research it. She worked to buy it. She worked, all the, she worked to wrap it. She, she, did you know that when you give presents, wrapping paper has to go with the person you're giving it to? That's new to me. It was new to me. I, I don't make that mistake anymore. It has to somehow match their personality. Good luck. <laughs> My question is this. What would happen, church? What would happen in your life? What would happen in your faith? What would be the byproduct? What would happen in our church if we prepared ourselves to give to God the way that we prepare ourselves to give to the things of this world? What if we prepared to give to God the way we're preparing for our 401k retirement plan? What would happen if we prepared to give our time to God like we do the things of this world that we can't take with us into eternity? What would happen if we prepared to give to God relationally like we do uh, when we're on Facebook in those relationships? Uh, the relationships of, of social media, which are nothing but a big facade. And I don't mean to knock you, but I've never seen anybody truly live their life on social media the way they live their life. They live vicariously. They live a life that they want you to think or believe about themselves. I've never seen anybody put a really bad picture of themselves up as their image. 
and say, this is me. I haven't brushed my teeth. This is my bed head, uh, my morning look. I hadn't showered yet. Uh, it, hello, world. I mean, maybe, it, maybe it's out there, but lucky for me, my bed head's the same as my night head, my day head, my, just, just my head. What would happen? What would happen? What would be the byproduct of your faith and our church if we prepared to give to God? I want to share a big so what. Somebody came up to me last week and said, Pastor, I miss your big so what's. I love your teaching, but tell me what to do with it. All right, here it is. Here's the big so what. What God desires from us is that we give all of us because he gave all for us. What God desires from us is that we give all of us because he gave all for us. We don't get to be, he wasn't selective in how much he gave or who he gave to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. A life free of gnashing of teeth, a life free of illness, a, a life free of bitterness, a life free of sorrow, a life free of death, a life in glory. A life seated with the Father, worshiping, singing, growing in relationships and community with a perfect body, free from ailments and aches and breaks. And He gave everything, and it, was, it wasn't exclusive. It was inclusive. He gave it for all. And so I have to ask the question, then, if this is the kind of worship that's holy and pleasing to God, that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all of our will, with all of our spiritual lives, with all of our bodies, and with everything we think of, then why are we selective and inclusive with how we give to God? Well, God, we'll give you this, but we won't give you that. I'll give you this time, but I won't give you that time. I'll give you this relationship, but I won't give you that relationship. Church, if we want to honor God and live worship the way we are created and called to worship, then we must give all of us because he gave all for us. So let me ask you this question, and then I have a challenge for you. What are you going to do different this Christmas as you prepare to give? When you're thinking about the gifts that you're given and how you're giving them and all that, think about what God gave you. We're going to learn more about that next week. I'm so excited. For, I got a special, special treat in store for you next week. A special treat. You will be sad. You'll be, you, will, you will kick yourself if you miss next week. But as you're preparing for the gifts that you're going to give this year, think about what God's given you, the greatest gift of all. And think about how you're going to prepare to give to God. How are you going to prepare to give your time to God? How are you going to prepare to give your resources to God, your money? And, and the talents that he's given you. How are you going to prepare to give your relationships to God? It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. We have to work. We have to ready ourselves and prepare ourselves. All right, here's, here's a challenge. Church, I want to invite you to pray about a challenge with me, okay? Will you join me in the next three weeks in praying about fasting, talking it over with your spouse, but really truly surrender to God? And I'm, I'm asking you guys to do something special this year. I'm asking you guys to give to a year-end offering. A year-end offering is different than our normal tithes. It's different than our normal gifts. 
A year-end offering is a collection of resources that we say, God, all that I am and all that I have is yours. And I want to give to advance the kingdom, your kingdom of God, this side of heaven. And so I want to give, I want to give, I want to give. Lord, what do you want me to give? And so I want you to pray about what that looks like. And over the next three weeks, we're going to collect these resources and we're going to put them back into advancing the kingdom of God. Some of you need to ask the question, what are they going to do with this, with this special offering? Let me tell you what God's already done this year. Just this year. Just this year at this church. I thought you might find this interesting. As of two weeks ago, we have more than 180 people who have bowed their heart and bent their knees to Jesus Christ for the first time as Lord and Savior of their life. Many of you who are sitting here this morning. Amen. You can get excited about that. 180 people plus that are going to know the eternity of God because of the ministry that God is doing through Country Bible Church. Another thing I thought you might find fascinating. Did you know that before this morning, and I've already seen several between the last service and this one go out. As of last Sunday, Country Bible Church has given out 513 Bibles. Now listen, that is not international. That is not national. That is not statewide. That's not even countywide. We have given out 513 Bibles to people who have come through the doors of our church who say they want the Word of God in their hands. 513 Bibles. That's incredible. That word, that's worth celebrating. That's, that, that's not just some extra point. That's not a PAT. That's a touchdown. That, 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 that's, that's, that, that's fantasy points right there. That is like seriously, we are getting the Word of God in people's hands. And they're bringing it. They're bringing it. They're learning. They're studying. Uh, as of two weeks ago, in short order, we had 43 people baptized. 43. Two weeks ago, we had 22 in one day. And I've been told there's already people ready to go now. Like, just pull out the, the horse trough. Let's do it again. 43 baptisms. Did you guys know that this year alone, we gave over $60,000 to missions? We gave over $60,000 to local, national, and international missions, including our students who went to Dominican Republic and they're going to Nicaragua next year to Vacation Bible School where we had the largest number turnout for Vacation Bible School than we've ever had. The largest number of volunteers. I mean, amazing. And did you know that this year we've raised over $24,000 for local ministry projects here in our church and in our community? So when I ask you to pray about about giving. Here's what I want. I just want to remind us. We are a church that is going to be known for how we give. And not only give, but our radical generosity. Our radical generosity. Our radical generosity. When you give to support the ministry, it's not what I want from you. It's what I want for you. You are acting on your worship. You are giving to God all that you have. And you're saying, God, all that I am and all that I have is yours. But the other thing is you are a part. You are every bit a part of the advancement. of the, You are every bit a part of the 180 plus people, the 513 Bibles, the 43 baptisms, the, 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 the countless monies that we send off to me. You are every bit a part of all that as I am. That is where when Paul says, you, humorous, you alone, but then just after that, I forgot to touch on this, he uses the word you, which is soma, the body, the collection. I'm asking you to prayerfully consider how you're going to radically be generous this Christmas as you prepare to give.
How are you going to prepare to give your life to God in every way? And how are you going to prepare to give above your normal tithe and your normal gifts? But to give an offering. Over the next three weeks, you'll hear more about it next week. And, uh, and then I believe, guys, one year. Do you know that the average church in America is about 120 people? That's 90% of the churches in America are about 120 people total. We had 180 salvations alone. That's huge. God has chosen to bless our church. We've got to be good stewards and be responsible and be intentional. All right. I hope you're excited. I hope you're excited. I hope you. Thank you. Thank you. Even if it was obligatory, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for this opportunity to be in your word. Thank you for my friends and for our opportunity to study your word together. Thank you for how you are moving in and through the ministry of Country Bible Church. God, we love you. We praise you. We celebrate you. And we ask you to continue to bring us the harvest. Father, allow us and prompt us and lead us to be good stewards of what you've given us. And Father, I pray that as we are faithful with what you've given us, you will entrust us with all the more. Amen.